The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. I hope you all are enjoying spring somewhere. Um, We really haven't gotten it in New Hampshire yet, but we have high hopes. Um, We have a great show today. Um, What I want to talk with all of you about is the whole idea of um, how do you help somebody get into treatment who really doesn't want to get into treatment. Um, What we've learned since I first started working in the profession um, in the 70s when the concept of hitting bottom was what everyone subscribed to and um, it, and, the, and the damage that sometimes we inadvertently incur on the people that we work with as a result of high confrontation, low touch, um, high authoritarianism and, and low collaboration. And when I was thinking about doing this show, the person that came to mind to um, talk about it was our guest, and I'm thrilled to have her with us, Dr. Judith Landau, who is a child, family, community neuropsychiatrist. She specializes in resilience and overcoming adversity across cultures. She's the co-developer of the evidence-based best practice, Arise Continuum of Care. Dr. Landau, Landau draws on 30 years of research and experience aimed at facilitating long-term healing for survivors of trauma and their families, including those suffering from addiction, PTSD, and head injury. She's the author of numerous peer-reviewed publications. She has taught in 100-plus countries, trained more than 1,000 certified people as a RISE interventionist, and she's consulted um, to the UN, the World Health Organization, the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, the National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, and SAMHSA, and several international governments. Um, I could go on for the whole hour talking about her accomplishments and everything that she's done in her life, but I think the real important thing is for us to all hear from, from Judith ourselves. So thank you, Judith, for um, coming on the show and tackling this topic with us. I'm delighted to to have the opportunity. Thank you so much for the invitation, Mary. Well, I, I would I think it would be a good place to start. Um, back when I first started working in the profession, um, interventions were um, were surprised. They, they the family worked in isolation from the individual who needed treatment. They were surprised. They were. Um, I call them snatch and grabs or or shock <laughs> interventions where somebody right. had no idea that, you know, what was on in store for them and would either agree to be go into treatment or there would be some significant um, consequence that would disrupt their role in the family. And that was what we thought was good. And, and I saw 
being in a treatment center, an addiction treatment center, how most of the time we spent with that individual getting over their anger toward their family that they were there. And very little of what they really, the work they really needed to do, they were not available to do it. Mm-hmm. So um, when we found out about the Arise interventions, it was like, you know, it was like finding, I don't know, like the sun coming out after a long, cold winter. Yeah, you know, it was like, wow, this makes sense. This is something that we can, we can certainly offer to families, but offer families to this process so that they end up intact at the end of the process. So thank you for your work in doing that. But could you explain to our audience a little bit about how you got interested in, in the whole concept of working in interventions? Yeah, thank you. I'd love to do that. Um, I was a young psychiatric resident um, in the 60s doing, um, so I'm a little older, um, working with families and going into homes in a way that was not accepted in those days because um, the focus was on the patient and perhaps if it was a child, the mother. Um, what happened was the chairman of psychiatry said, you know, I should go somewhere that I couldn't do any more harm, but I also couldn't do any good and sent me to run a 90-bed addiction hospital. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I was all of about 22 years old and I had this 90-bed hospital and the only thing I knew about addiction was my own decision to get into recovery and some family stories from my own family that was sort of kept pretty secret, but everybody knew about them. So what I did was brought in the families, AANA, the employers, um, the patients, and anybody else who could possibly teach me about addiction. And um, I didn't know any of the rules that came in a little later and that were very prevalent in the United States particularly that one had to wait for a patient to hit bottom before you intervened or helped them at all. And um, I automatically just brought in anybody who cared to, to tell me what was going on. I invited the person they were worried about, whether it was psychiatric or addiction, you know, psychiatric problem or addiction or both, and learned a great deal and never had any trouble getting people to come in for for a session. So then the Johnson intervention came out in the early 70s, and I got trained in it, and I did a number of them, and I did a very careful evaluation of the results of the Johnson intervention and what I was doing, which at that point I just called out of the way I was working with transitional family theory and therapy. And I found that the way that I was working was much more effective, so I stopped doing doing Johnson interventions and thought I was stopping doing interventions. When I moved to the States, I was consulted to a number of programs on integrating families into treatment, including addiction treatment. And one of them was a, an um, intensive outpatient program in Albany directed by James Garrett. And what he discovered was 
as we started working and I was integrating families, suddenly he started having people coming into treatment without a problem. And he had done over a thousand Johnson interventions by then and um, said there's something different going on here. What is it that you're doing that is bringing people into treatment motivated to work and, and the families are coming with them? So we took transitional family theory and formalized what I was doing with the objective of having people feel really good about the work they were doing and making it cost-effective by having the professionals spend the least possible time and the families do most of the work. And in us, we then did a formal study through the National Institute on Drug Abuse and our results were amazing, way better than anything else, because both the patient and the family came into treatment motivated, they attended groups, they completed treatment, and the outcome at one year was, was really positive. So it was very exciting. So we published a rise and started training in it. So for our audience who may not have a clinical background, could you explain a little bit what is transitional family theory? Yeah. Basically, you know, what, what really mattered was that the, 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 the theory really is um, a belief that all of us as human beings and every living thing is inherently competent and healthy and has the capacity to heal. And, um, you know, healing is not always possible with chronic illness, but to do, to do better if we rely on our connection to our, the people who really care about us, our families, our communities, and also our culture and spirituality. And when we can do that, we have the capacity to exercise our strengths and our resilience in a way that allows us um, to deal with the whole spectrum from overcoming challenges to achieving our goals. And so, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. The, and the overcoming challenges can be day-to-day trauma. It can be mass disaster. And our goals may be goals for ourselves, goals for our families, um, goals for the business we're in. You know, um, I think what's really um, important for our listeners to understand is um, what a humane process this is for everybody involved. And um, could you explain a little bit about, like, typically a family would come because they're extremely concerned about a family member and in a high state of um, energy and maybe fear and, and maybe even anger, how would you deal with that family Um in, in right. what, yeah, what, what happens, the way that ARISE works, we start with um, typically with getting either a call or a visit from a family member who's concerned about a loved one. And um, what we like to say is we're not waiting for the loved one to hit bottom or to be desperate or go to jail or have a major physical illness from the addiction or die. We we work with the family's bottom, the family getting upset enough to call out and reach reach out for us. 
And when that family member calls, we spend time finding out who else in the family cares about that person and um, who would be willing to work with us. We, we talk a lot about um, how addiction starts. You know, in every family, addiction starts with loss or trauma, and that doesn't just involve the addicted individual. It involves the whole family. We explain to the person that this is a process that is loving, hopeful, empowering, inclusive, that it can be fun and includes celebration rather than the terror of, are we all going to come together and abuse and tell the person we love how bad they are, we're looking instead at the strengths and the qualities of love in this family and how we're going to apply them compassionately and without blame to help the person they're worried about get into treatment. And we're not just trying to get the one individual healthy. We're working with that whole family to have them all be healthier and happier across time. So, so everybody in the family would have a goal, not just the person that's going into treatment. Exactly. And we also explain that this is not, you know, when people have been watching the intervention show on television, they're often really scared of how rough the process will be, how rough it will be, and that... Um, Two things, that first of all, that it'll be a rough process, which with us it isn't. We're not asking for a long-term commitment initially. We're coaching that first caller to talk to other people in the family who love the individual to decide which of them is best to invite the person. There's no secret. There's no surprise. Everybody's invited, including Uncle Joe, who's drinking. And we'll be right back to talk more about this after our commercial. Um, And we'll continue this on the other side of our commercial. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Judith Landau, um, who is a child, family, and community neuropsychiatrist specializing in resilience and overcoming adversity across cultures. And we're talking with Dr. Landau about uh, the process of entering treatment for people who really don't think they need to be in treatment. And I guess um, my question is, we're talking about people who have substance use disorders, but this process could work for people with mental health disorders or people who don't want to go in for physical therapy or other types of chronic illnesses as well? Yeah, for example, executives who are too busy to go have their blood pressure checked and kids who don't want their, don't want to be checked for their diabetes. So yes, in any of those. So we were talking about um, what happens when somebody calls us and um, the right intervention is really trying to get somebody into treatment through love and compassion and removing all the blame, shame, and guilt by having them understand and gain perspective on the importance of connection to family and um, understanding that addiction is a disease, that it's precipitated by grief and loss that can be healed, and that we believe in a longer-term process where we're not just doing an event and terrifying or coercing someone into treatment. We're helping the whole family work on healing and what each one needs to achieve for him or herself. So it's a very simple process. It's the first call, and in that we help the person who's calling worry a little less, understand that um, they're going to be supported and that we coach them to, to, to mobilize other people who care about the first caller as well as the person they're worried about. And we ask them just to come to one meeting, a family meeting, to decide who in the family would be best to invite the person they're worried about So we invite that person, there are no secrets, there are no surprises, and then at that first meeting, we find that over 60% of the individuals that they're worried about go into treatment, and everybody commits to doing what they need for themselves to get as healthy as possible. Only if that first meeting doesn't get them into treatment do we continue stepping up 
inviting more people and um, having two to four meetings to help get them into treatment. And by then, we've got nearly 90% into treatment. And um, that's within about three weeks. And while the person is in treatment, we start what we call continuing care, where the family continues to meet, dealing with their own issues, and speaking with the person in treatment on a regular basis with his or her counselor. So it's a continuum of care that goes for typically 6 to 12 months, sometimes longer, sometimes less, where everybody works on getting healthy, communication, relationships, meeting their goals. So, Judith, what, what do you say to a family member who says, I'm not the one with the problem, my, my husband or my mother is the one with the problem? How do you address that? Yeah, that's pretty typical, and it's what happens with almost every call. So, so Mary, um, how have you been feeling about, about um, all that you've got to do to take care of your, your, your husband who's drinking? And um, is there anybody else who cares about him, or is the burden falling entirely on you? Typically, our first callers are the ones who have been dealing with the addiction what we call one-on-one. And if you think about a problem, the two people most closely involved in it are the ones with the least perspective and the most challenge in being able to fix it. So do you think anybody else in the family cares enough to be working with you to get this person healthy? And do you think anyone cares enough about you to worry about how this burden is? is for you, and once we have the whole family, we can form a family board where when, you know, when, when your husband or your son calls you to say, this is what I need and puts a lot of pressure on you, um, we can say you, could, you need to call the family board. Let them make the decision so you're not trapped one-on-one in the old pattern. And we explain how we're going to, you know, get the whole family and friends to be supportive. And if there aren't family members, friends, colleagues, so that that person isn't trapped alone anymore. One of the concepts that um, I've certainly heard throughout my profession professional life in terms of working with people who have substance use disorders is the whole concept of enabling. And oftentimes family members get the label, they enable this person to continue to use or, or, or drink or do whatever. And, and I think, as you had said earlier, that puts the, a lot of shame and blame on the family when the reality of it is they're trying to just, they love this person, trying to keep them alive. So how, how do you talk to people, because I'm sure some of the things you do are seen by some facets of our profession as enabling. Right. You know, what, what we do is we'll, um, you know, we'll say to them, you know, let's say it's a mom who's calling in. And, you know, often they'll say, well, we, you know, I went to an Al-Anon meeting or my friends say I'm enabling. And I'll say, well, let's, let's not use words that sound bad. Let's think about what's really going on. Have you lost anybody in the family? 
you know, is there is there any other loss or grief or trauma? Well, my my husband lost his job, and you know, my mom isn't well, and so I said, well, are you scared about losing about losing your child? Mm-hmm. Terrified of losing my child. So I said, well, forget about the word enabling. What you're trying to do is to protect your child from death and protecting yourself from further loss. So let's look at how can we help you protect in a more effective, healthier way. And who else would care about not letting him or her die? So that would be a way of helping her understand that she needs to bring in additional people and that she's not to blame, but this is a human emotion that we don't want to lose the people we love. So, of course, we protect them, and we need to help her find a healthier way of doing that. You, you had once, I had once heard you talk about this being intergenerational. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, You know, when I ask people if there has been any loss or trauma, they will often say no, Um, because we don't think when we're struggling with somebody who's addicted, we don't think beyond our own nuclear family. And what happens when, when there is a major loss, let's say in a grandparent or great grandparent, Um, somebody else in the family will develop a behavior that distracts everybody else from their grief so that they can keep functioning. Uh, Let me give you a silly example. One of the the youngest people I saw with this was a kid who wasn't quite two, and I was meeting with her parents, and she was in the room, and as her parents started to argue, she picked up crayons that she'd been drawing on the floor and, and started drawing on the wall. Well, the minute she started drawing on the wall, her parents stopped arguing and took care of her to stop the behavior. So addiction serves that same purpose. It distracts people from their loss so they can keep functioning. And because it's effective it becomes a pattern that's then transmitted down the generation. Um, And if we think about another example with, um, let's say, a husband who's promoted, which means that he's away from the house a lot, Um, one of the children is likely to step in and help. And when we lived in traditional extended families, a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle would step in to help mom. When we're living in nuclear families, that doesn't happen, so a kid has to step up. And that's often the kid who's most at risk, because that's the kid that feels responsible, but without the training or the maturity to do the job. So those are two of the really important dynamics that happen normally in every family. It's only when the loss or the absence is extreme that we use something to something more um, effective to um, to deal with the grief. 
And if the grief is the loss of somebody important or a major trauma, the person who's creating the distraction will also need to deal with that grief themselves because the rest of the family is coping perfectly and they may become depressed or suicidal and those are the people that don't survive. It's the ones who use a substance or start gambling or overeating in order to assuage that grief so they can keep functioning. Those are the ones that survive. And the other thing that happens with it is that as they're doing things that are becoming a problem with these adaptive behaviors that are really dysfunctional, the family is pulled together to deal with those behaviors in the same way as that young couple went to stop their kid drawing and... Much like the young couple whose who's, uh, child would, would start drawing on the wall to um, deflect what was going on between mom and dad. Exactly, and that is the effect of the... So the effect of the problem behaviors from the drinking or the gambling or the compulsive overeating, and particularly if we think about substances and all the effects of the behaviors that result, the whole family is drawn to take care of the problem behavior, which further distracts them from their grief, but at the same time it prevents further loss because it's holding them all together. So, so those two things, the distraction and the being held closely together, are why the addiction then becomes an unconscious, because it was effective, it's unconsciously handed on from generation to generation. And when families understand and they can look at their own intergenerational story, the light goes on and they understand that they're not to blame and that they can do this differently. And we'll be right back to talk about that after this next commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Kelly covers our relationship with food and teaches us how easy eating well and living well can be taking us on a weekly food journey, guiding us to a more rich and vibrant life. So tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. 
You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Judith Landau, and we've been talking about um, invitational interventions and how to get people into treatment when they really don't think they need any. And I think that um, if anyone listening is struggling with a family member who you believe needs treatment, I would really invite and encourage you to um, go on the Arise website, which I'm sure Judith will give us the the address for um, in a little bit and and look at this process and find a new RISE interventionist. I don't think you will ever regret it. Um, We were talking a little bit um, during the commercial break about how communities suffer trauma as well as individuals and families and what effect that has on the individual. And I'm, you know, I got up this morning and there were 16 people who lost their life as a result of tornadoes in Arkansas last yesterday and um, had to go to a wake on Saturday and drove through Sandy Hook in Newtown, Connecticut. So mm-hmm. um, can you speak a little bit to us about trauma in the community and, and what that is process is and how the individual experiences it? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, one of the things that happens when there is any kind of major tragedy, I mean, for example, in New York, there was an elevator that fell with nine people in it. Um, not only, you know, are, they, are their families traumatized, but everybody else around them. And then we think about, you know, mass disasters like, Sandy Hook and Oklahoma City. Um, at the time of the Oklahoma City bombing, um, you know, there were a certain number of people who were directly affected. Ten years later, multiply that by five for the number of people that had post traumatic stress. So we have to think in terms of what do we do to prevent the problems that arise? Um, when there is any kind of mass disaster in the same way as with an individual family, we'll see addiction. Any kind of mass disaster or people who've had, you know, become refugees, there's an automatic 30% increase in addiction in that community, as well as increase in heart disease and, and, and trauma response. 
the one thing that we can do that makes an enormous difference is enhancing the connections of those who are left. You know, what happens when people are traumatized, they tend to withdraw and go into isolation and do whatever each one does for stress relief. And it's almost counterintuitive to have them go out and connect with their neighbors and their friends. But that's the most important part and and with their spiritual belief system, whatever that is. The most important thing we can do when there's been a major loss. So, um, for example, after Katrina with New Orleans, the, many of the families, not only was there a huge percentage of, the, of that particular community lost, and they lost their homes, which is where a lot of our security comes from, but when they were rescued, many of them, many of the families were split up. So instead of having a 30% increase in addiction, they had a 60% increase within a year. And the same thing happens in war zones. When families connect with their neighbors, um, make a concerted effort to expand their community and look at what they can do to help others if they weren't directly impacted and make sure they connect with the ones who are, the rate of increase in addiction is much less and it heals much more quickly. Well, you know, as you're saying that, I think I'm thinking about, um, certainly if you think about London, that, that for, what, 10 months was getting bombed nightly, and uh-huh. people living in, in the underground, you know, yeah. and neighborhoods living in the underground. And do you know what the rate of addiction was after that? Um, because there um, certainly yeah, seemed to be a it, sense of um, community. It was over 40% increase. Okay. And what we see even in countries where there is no addiction normally, like Kosovo, which was secular Muslim country, um, the Jewish population after the Holocaust, stress like that, even where there's a population that wasn't drinking before, immediately goes up and, and matches the drinking population of other communities where there always has been drinking. And again, why does it, you know, why does it happen? It happens because the one person who's drinking or using um, is assuaging their own, you know, their own guilt, their, I mean, their own grief, and then the behaviors and the problems that arise bring the family together. So it's an, a, a, I see addiction as resilience in action. If you're interested on the AriseIntervention.com site, there's a TEDx talk that goes through how we develop our family secrets and how the addiction develops and how we can change that. Um, So you think about a whole community where everybody is being pulled together as a way to save them by problem behavior like drinking or gambling. And it's effective. It works. And because it works, it continues. But it only continues for two to three, sometimes four generations. And by then, the grieving is done and somebody leads the family into recovery. 
and the whole family then starts to recover. So if you think about the first trauma and one person drinking or using, the next generation there'll be more. By the third generation, it's across the cousins. By generation five, there's almost none left because the grieving is done. So some of the the theory behind Arise is that we don't have to wait three to five generations. We can come in at any point and work towards healing the whole family. And finding effective ways to protect and love one another instead of an unconscious way that really brings its own destruction. Yeah, that's really interesting when you think about, um, you know, we call this being a multi-generational um, disease, uh, any type of addiction, and and you you see it um, from one generation to another, and it, it's almost, um, it's predictable, even... Yeah, and, and not only is it predictable, but when we get that first call... The terror is that not only is this person going to die, but that the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren will also have the disease. Right. And once, when we're working right from that first call, we're helping the first caller and then the whole family understand how this works so they can make sure that they're bringing the intergenerational strength and survival skills from previous generations so that this does not have to go on into future generations. So one of the most important effective tools of Arise is hope and the knowledge that they have the capacity to change. You know, thinking about addiction being a form of resilience is um, a unique concept. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. But if you think about the other, the other reactions to trauma are, are depression and suicide. Yeah. Or post-traumatic stress that renders people totally incompetent and often results in suicide. Addiction is a slow form of suicide, and if we can keep the addicted individuals alive long enough, they don't need to die, and they don't, because those are the intergenerational families where... Someone will come into the office and say, you know, for that first meeting, there's no hope for us. We've already got generations of addiction. And then I'll say, well, do you know where it started? No, you know, Grandpa was was drinking heavily. Well, tell me about him. Um, tell me about his parents. Well, his dad died when he was four. And then do you think his mom was depressed after that? And maybe we've got a four-year-old who similarly to our little two-year-old who drew on the wall is distracting his mom from her grief. Um, And and once they can see that and understand how it starts, there's a clear pathway to forgiving themselves, not feeling ashamed and guilty, and being able to look at a memorial service, a way of being grateful for the people who have gone in the past and making concrete plans to attend 12-step meetings, to meet regularly. I have a family who's now nearly three years after the Arise Intervention and Continuing Care. They're still having their weekly family meetings like they did with me, 
and using it as an opportunity for celebration, sharing news, and continuing to stay connected. And all four addicted individuals in that family are still clean and healthy. That's amazing. Um, and what a hopeful what a hopeful message for our listeners. And we'll be back after this commercial with our last segment with Dr. Landau. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Are you ready to laugh and learn as you get the info that will get you fit? Small steps can lead to big changes once you're headed in the right direction. Join the dynamic twin sister and exercise expert team of Alexandra Williams and Kimberly Williams-Evans on Active Aging for Boom Chicka Boomers. K&A bring you top-level guests who offer active aging advice and practical tips you can use today. Enjoy the second phase of life with vitality, brain power, and energy. Active Aging for Boom Chicka Boomers airs live Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, I'm your host, Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Judith Landau. We've been talking about a number of things, um, including how people get better um, and the important role that families play in, in people getting better and in the hope that families can get into recovery as a unit and just enhance their relationships in their lives. And um, you talked a couple times about resiliency, Dr. Landau, and could you talk a little bit more about that so our, our um, audience really understands what you mean by that, resiliency? Yes, I, I thank you. Thank you, Mary. Um, 
growing up um, in the middle of a war zone, um, I got to feel that regardless of how many people were murdered and disappeared, that there was still a sense of safety amongst the children. So when I started doing research into how families managed to survive all the awful things that every one of our families has been through with immigration or migration or the refugee experience or losing people in war or just you know, untimely deaths of children, I started looking at how, how do we... How do we remain resilient? And what I found was that our connection to our families of origin and our culture of origin are protective against risk-taking, that we actually are given those tools just by being alive and that we can get through the most traumatic events and come out the other side stronger than we were, with more resources than when we went in. So if we think about somebody having a traumatic event and being isolated, they're the ones that are going to get into trouble. The ones who have close friends and family available and who are able to reach out to them are the ones who will be safer. And in terms of how we stay connected to culture of origin, it's really learning our family stories that come down through the generations so we can understand the survival strength and the qualities that come down our families that we want to see in our great-great-grandchildren. And what was amazing in one of my studies was finding that the people most at risk were the ones who knew no stories at all, that people who knew horrible stories of murder and addiction was safer against risk-taking, whether it was sexual risk-taking or addiction, than the ones who didn't know any stories. So that connection to our loved ones and our support community is the most important prevention tool. And that's where our resilience comes from. What if someone's adopted? Is it and it's not their family, their biological family, is, is it still protective if you know your, your adoptive family's history? It, it, yeah, the, what we do with adopted, adopted kids, it's important for them to understand that they have access to the intergenerational strength of their adoptive family because that's who's raising them. So okay. they don't have to come down biologically but we also do a lot of work with sending adopted kids who have a higher rate of addiction than, than non-adopted kids. What we do is we send them, either help them reconnect with the, with the biological families if that's possible. If not, we'll send them to the Internet to look at what might have been happening in the community, in the country, in the, you know, in that particular family at the time that they were born. What kind of sacrifice and reason for giving them up um, could there have been? And typically it will be altruistic rather than punitive. Most mothers who give up their children do it out of love. And once they can understand the, the environment and what might have precipitated the adoption, they get a sense of 
having been loved right from the beginning by their biological family as well as the intergenerational strengths of their adoptive family. So um, before we run out of time, could you let our listeners know the best way to get a hold of you or to learn more about Arise Interventions if they are in need of one? Absolutely. So our website is ariseintervention.com. The phone number is 877-229-5462. Again, ariseintervention.com or call 247-877-229-5462. We'd love to hear from you. And it will be a call that you will be forever grateful to have made. <laughs> Thank you, I'm Mary. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so in, in thinking about resilience, um, how can treatment programs uh, help families and, and individuals become more resilient? Because we tend uh, to focus on the problem. Right. The, the most important thing is families often feel such an enormous relief when their loved one's gone into treatment, that they don't want to participate any further because they need a break. Um, I can really tell you that those families who participate in the treatment, who work constantly with one another and doing their own 12-step meetings, their own therapy if needed, and going to the family program in the treatment center, those are your loved ones who will do best. Um, one person in the family going to one meeting makes a statistical significant difference in the recovery rate of your loved one. And because we keep families involved all the way through while they're in treatment, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, and for at least 6 to 12 months, we have um, over 60% clean and sober at one year with another 10% improved where the national average is lower than 20% at one year. And that's really because of what families can do. Families are very powerful. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the, the love and connectedness which yeah. provides the resilience for people to heal. And, and I think that we've underestimated that for many years, at least in the addiction world. I think we've seen, even though we call addiction a family disease, we've really segmented. There's the family treatment on one side and then the individual on the other with very little coming together. Right. And, in fact, it's the working together that really provides the healing and the long-term recovery and prevents somebody else in the family from picking up the addiction if one gets sober. So I guess our, our closing message to everyone is, um, you know, love and hope is the road to healing, and um, families have such a huge role in getting themselves well and getting their loved ones well. And um, please, if you if you have any concerns, go on the Arise.com website or call Judith at her 800 number, and um, it'll be something that you will never regret. And thank you so much, Judith, for spending this hour with us. Thank you, Mary. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you for doing what you do. You're welcome. And have a great week, everybody. Um, Talk to you next time. 
We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.